Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have Kelly Stewart as my guest. She's founder of The Positive Business, and she helps companies and charities improve their strategy and strategic implementation plans. The average project in transformation fails because of poor strategic execution and a tendency to have assumptions made without involving the people who are going to be at the sharp end of the stick. So we're going to be exploring transformation, change, execution, what works, what doesn't work. And we're also going to be exploring the importance of seeing both sides, not only the downside and how you can process stuff, but also the other bits, the, the, you know, the possibilities, looking at the ideal future and how you can find the common ground between people in order to get them all bought in and pulling their weight and, and feeling like it's something they've built as opposed to having something imposed on them. So Kelly, welcome. Hi, Marcus. It is an absolute pleasure to be here. I could not be more excited. Thanks for having Very me. Good. I'm delighted that's the case because uh, as usual, the usual rough ride of awkward and uncomfortable questions is coming your way. <laughs> Tell me, give me 60 to 90 seconds in terms of your history and what got you to the point where you now hold a place uh, right. where you work. Well, it started for me back when I was 16. I was a secretarial assistant part-time in an office, went out and honed my skills shortly thereafter. And by the time I was 19, I returned to that company and I was the full-time executive assistant to the president of a 50-person firm. So that was, even though I didn't know it at the time, one of my first and earliest looks at how a business is run, can be run. And I'm fortunate to say that for the most part, it was a very positive experience. Well, as and an then, executive assistant, you're basically an underpaid board member, aren't you? <laughs> yes. You I know, it's quite the implementer. <laughs> yeah, but you, you do all the things that the board does and you get to carry the, uh, all the heavy lifting. And you've got to coordinate everyone in the organization to do what they're meant to do in an orchestrated way. That must have been a brilliant um, foundation. It really was. And it was one that I don't think I appreciated fully at that time. But certainly looking back, I see where it shaped a lot of my beliefs and perceptions. And um, and it expanded my own skill set, which was great. So I went off from there and went on to hold roles then in other companies in terms of client services, new business development, and marketing. So I've always had some type of a leadership role that I think that initial job really prepared me for because of the insights that I had. And um, the companies I worked for were always smaller companies, but we always worked for much larger organizations. So I've worked with a lot of very large corporations, large nonprofit organizations and foundations. And most of my work has been in the B2B business-to-business services. So really intangible service, longer sales cycle, relationship-oriented. And I spent some time in the U.S. K-12 market, too, which is an entity all of its own. We call it B2E, lots of decision makers. You create products for an end user that has absolutely no decision-making, the right. student, right? <laughs> so uh, it's a very different thing. But all of that has really helped me see the good, the bad, the ugly. And about five years ago, I had my at last moment. 
And that was really when I discovered that everything that I believed about how business could be done and had been fortunate to experience in some cases really existed. And in fact, there was a framework out there that I could use to help other organizations create more of what they wanted in ways that left people whole, right? In ways that were, for lack of a better word, Marcus, positive. There's no shame in it. The the (laughs) concept of um, command and control dehumanizes. And I was on a call yesterday and uh, someone referred to employees as staff. And it wasn't badly intended. It was probably quite generational and comes from an engineering background. And one of the other directors pointed out that a staff staff is an infection. So how do we then turn it more positive? And it was a very fair uh, observation. But again, we need to be aware of all these biases and uh, these filters that we've grown up with. Yes. Um, So that's probably one of the really interesting aspects of your work then. Tell me about um, the lessons that you learned as an executive assistant and going through those uh, other roles with that as a foundation um, about the fragility of egos, about personal interests would get in the way of corporate interests where there isn't alignment, those sorts of things. It was one of my first experiences in understanding that things aren't always as they appear. You know, it was very much, um, it was several decades ago. And so command and control was still really prevalent as, as a leadership style and business was more stable and predictable. I would even argue it's still it was alive more and well suited for it. Command and control is still alive and well. Oh, absolutely. It's just not as effective as it used to be in today's knowledge economy as it was when business was more stable and predictable. So I think that one of the things that I really did learn was if things are not always as they seem, and if something really doesn't make any sense to you at all, there is something else going on. And I think that was because I had a really early stakeholder mentality. Right. With command and control, there was still very much an us against them type of a thing going both ways. Right. And here I was square in the middle of it. Right. Because I was a them (laughs) and I worked with the us. And, you know, so it was it was an interesting experience. But I think it brought in my perspectives and helped me to become a little bit more aware of there are intersections where we agree. And where can we build off of that? Very good. I interviewed a fantastic guest, Alexander Knapp, who works on wicked problems. So at the moment, he's trying to mop up a global disaster. Um, and he's been um, you know, involved in uh, since the mid-90s, trying to bring stability into the Balkans, Darfur and Somalia. And he says that there are four rules around dealing with these really wicked, complex problems. The first solution will fail. Gather the data, capture the lessons, try again, capture the data. Stakeholders differ. And I'm noticing it more and more in my work that when you take the macro uh, view, there are lots and lots of stakeholders and the rules change as you play. Absolutely. Um, And there's no perfect answer. There are only imperfect options. And so I'm curious. Uh, in terms of the work that you do, helping them, first of all, 
devise an improved uh, strategy. Could you talk us through a little bit about how you do that? And I'm interested also in how it's sold internally, in terms of how do you get all these different stakeholders with seemingly at odds objectives to work towards common purpose and give discretionary effort. Right. So creating shared vision, right, is is um is a gargantuan task in a lot of ways. So I'm giving you the the Cliff Notes version of what that looks like. Yeah. But I think at the root of it is something that, that the framework is is that I use is SOAR. So it's strengths, opportunities, aspirations, and results. It's been field tested, proven for the last 20 years. Most people compare it to SWAT. We can talk about that later, but it's rooted in something called appreciative inquiry. And what the the principles of appreciative inquiry, which have also been around for 30 years, fundamentally, there's something in every organization that works. When we focus on that, we can create more of it. So it's a very, I'm going to say the word wrong, so help me out on this, Marcus, egalitarian. Thank you. Uh, So it's one of those ways that brings everyone together. There isn't a structure in the room. There isn't a hierarchy in the room because there's a structure that brings people together working in very small groups. And then the next part of that is the language, which are these generative questions. And that's straight out of the appreciative inquiry handbook. And um, the generative questions are ones that change the way a person thinks that the moment they're asked. And they also, and this is what I find is the hardest thing for an established business leader to, to really wrap their heads around, right? They are questions for which we do not already have the answer. So in the best possible solution, the leaders, everyone, the people essential to the organization's success, stakeholders, right? Sometimes that could include vendors, clients, community members, right? They might not all be in the room at the same time. They could be, but they don't have to be. But you're having these conversations with everyone and you're asking them questions that help to really surface this kind of commonality. And the way you track it is by each group reports out so that they can see for themselves how many times a common theme was mentioned. And all of a sudden they see wow, we were kind of all thinking this. We all had our spin on it. We said it in a different way. Maybe we had a little twist that somebody else didn't have. But it becomes apparent in every one that I've done that there are three to five things in every conversation around strengths, around opportunities, around aspirations, around results. I'm a problem child. I don't do them in that order. But however, around each of those conversations, we get something that we start to see critical mass being built around those ideas. And again, it is something that business leaders can facilitate on their own. I think it's more successful when you when you have someone else come in because then those leaders sit at the table and they don't sit at the tables with people that they're generally used to working with. There's a real plan to how everyone works together so that you're working with a mix of people at all levels of the organization are working together. And that's when you start to Find some of that information that helps you test your assumptions, right? It helps you understand early, sometimes even subtle market shifts that you might not otherwise be aware of because these are the things that come up in the conversation. So there's, um, let's just say the walls are down when we do it. I guess I just said, well, no, that, that, that makes sense. So 
once you've managed to create that collegiate environment and you've started to collect those themes, often getting down into the weeds is painful because of people's definitions, their background agenda is as well, if there's still um, that lingering. So how, how do you reach consensus around what those core values are, what the, you know, the purpose that you're uh, all working towards? It just does come from those exercises. It comes from having an, an idea first, what's the vision, right? So the, the business leaders, that has not changed. The business leaders must have the vision for where the organization is going. So we want to go to X, right? Maybe that's a new product. Maybe it's a new market. We're going to go there. So now we start to have these conversations around, well, what do we really care about if we're going to go there? Do we care about our environmental impact? Do we care, excuse me, about our mission? Um, and are we going to hold true to that? Because if we're stretching for this new market or if we're stretching for more market share, there are organizations that you know have resorted to very unsavory practices right down to opening up fake bank accounts for their clients, right? So we have to have that aspirations question. So the rough edges that you're talking about, they almost naturally get smoothed away in the design of the question. So if you're asking in terms of an aspiration, what one question, if answered today, could make the biggest impact on our company? Now you're going to have that question answered by people throughout different levels of the organization, but they're doing that in parallel to one another you get some very interesting insights and it really starts to remove the ego because there are so many aha moments that come from that. That's really new information for a lot of the, the leadership in the room. And it's interesting for people who are closer to the market, closer to the production of, of what that company does or the operations that they start to see leadership a little bit differently. So it's really also a whole practice of and we hear a lot about this, leaders should be more authentic and transparent, more emotionally intelligent. This gives them a really practical way to flex those muscles because they're there in the arena with everyone else. I think there's another really important aspect to this, which is that uh, there's more clarity in terms of the impact of the work that each department does interdepartmentally. And that greater appreciation then gives cause to question why you do certain things. I mean, I, I see this all the time in sales, you know, the, yeah. the emphasis on doing the same thing that has consistently failed to generate results beyond 1%. Exactly. Uh, and not sitting back and questioning it. I agree. I think it's one of the blind spots that business leaders get into is that they they have this kind of lack of diversity in their thinking and they rely a little too heavily on the ways we've done it because the ways we've done it have helped them become successful thus far. Well, their, their business is, you know, quite closely mirrors an organic entity. Um, you have all these different three-dimensional moving parts and they're emotional moving parts to boot because of the wetware. And as a result, they're very complicated. And I think one of the challenges, and you, you mentioned it in the preamble, is that the people who are actually going to have to implement aren't involved. A lot of organizations are still led through the balance sheet and 
the revenue numbers and uh, the pipeline. And that really doesn't take into account the fact that the utilities that appear as a cost um, in terms of employees on your balance sheet are quite different to the living, breathing human beings who spend time with your customers, living with your crappy decisions. Right, right. The old qualitative versus quantitative results, right? There are qualitative impacts that are outcomes that impact that quantitative bottom line. And it is beyond me, Marcus, as to how more people don't see that. When people ask me, it's one of the questions I get asked most frequently. Well, what's the ROI on what you do, Kelly? Mm-hmm. It's very interesting because I'm working with people. So um, an ROI traditionally is something that you have on a tangible physical asset. Typically, that tangible physical asset comes with a schematic. Here's how you put it together so it will work properly. And it comes with a manual. If something has gone wrong, please check these things. And then you can decide, you know, is this been a good return on our, on our investment? Is it doing what we need to do? People come without a schematic and they come without a manual, but they generate something else qualitatively, which is just as important to the bottom line, which is a return on energy. So when people feel happy, engaged, they're productive, they feel more close to more closely connected to their work. These are the qualitative aspects that you, I think you're alluding to that have an impact on retention, whether that be employee retention. Yeah. or client retention, and we know how important it is to replace both and onboard both. Um, and it's also on how long does it take to get a new product or service out to the market, right? What is the customer service? How, how are we you know, keeping all of that together? So there are real bottom line quantitative metrics that are so greatly influenced by the qualitative impact of the people who are essential to the organization's success. Okay, so you've now got a shared vision. You've got it down, documented. How do you then put that into practice? Because now the rubber really hits the road and people are going to be asked to do things differently. They'll have to be asked to learn new things and their status quo is disrupted. Yes. So how do you sell past that? Because in sales, the status quo wins 60% of the time on average. So it's your biggest competitor, bar none. And I'm curious how you get past the status quo with the stakeholders who are actually going to have to make this happen. Absolutely. So assuming that you do have that shared vision, as you alluded to, that's aspirations. That's actually where I start the framework. Then I move on to strengths. Because I think when we recall things that we've done well, but in a very specific way, it helps to increase our confidence that we will be able to do something else. So again, this is the comparison between if we focus on what's broken or what's missing, we as humans don't necessarily feel inspired or confident about learning new things when all we're hearing about is we don't do this well, we don't do that well, we need to get better at this. But when we change that focus, principle of appreciative inquiry, right? When we, what we focus on becomes our reality, right? When we change that focus to remember that time in the recession when it looked really bleak and we came out of that 
Remember, what was that product that we did? Oh, yeah. So now we start having conversations explicitly and specifically around what made that successful. Was it a timing issue? Maybe we can or cannot control that. Did we learn new things? Well, how was that learning successful? Oh, well, we had a mentor come in and show us. Oh, well, we were we were sent away for two weeks to learn something new. Okay, so what else made that successful? Well, our leaders were very clear. They communicated with us 100% of the time. We were you know, in constant communication. We understood as things were changing. We were allowed to do a little rapid prototyping. We were allowed to collect some of that data of things that were failing and we weren't punished for that. We built upon that. So that strengths conversation is really then important to helping people collectively and individually recall a time when something else went well and what they're most proud of in that. They use that as the jumping off point, the springboard to create more of what's wanted now. And it almost sounds too simple. And this is one of my frustrations is because we have, again, I speak in generalities for this, but for the most part, we have let critical thinking occupy so much of our thinking that that becomes a tough question for people to answer. That's what I'm shocked by. Comes a tough question to answer. What do you do really well? What are you most proud of as an organization? Tell me about a time when something really worked. What made that happen? And so we need the negative, right? Negative emotions, negative experiences are not discounted in this process at all because that's actually what wakes us up and says, ooh, we need to do something different. We need to stand up for what's unjust, or we need to stand up, uh, make better decisions about the health of our organization, right? So that's important. You use that what's broken, what's missing to identify what, and then you have these conversations to plan what you do want. And that's what helps to bring, it eases that state of change, which I'm not even sure, I'm increasingly feeling that the fear of change is a myth, but that's a conversation. How many back uh, Well, I'm with you on that. People fear uncertainty. They don't fear change. And the status quo has a magnetic appeal because you don't have to do anything. You just right. keep doing what you're doing and you've grown used to it. You've become inured. People welcome change, particularly. And, and so it's that very first question that you asked. And I've, it's lost, jumped out of my mind at the moment. Um, but um, how do you help them through the question that you ask make the intellectual shortcut between where they are to where they could be if they worked with you, your company, your product, your service, or they made this transformation program change. Remind me what that fabulous question was. Okay, well, I hope we're on the same page with it because it's, what if you could? What if you could do what you really cared about? What would that look like? And when they come to me, it's it's to talk about, and how good could that get? And I don't think that's something that we spend enough time thinking about in our hustle and bustle world. We have a solution. Oh, yeah, we're going to do that. Okay, great. And that's about as far as we go. But the how good could it get? That's the competitive advantage. That's when you find the things that you didn't expect to see because you haven't asked the question. How good could it get? Oh, I don't know. I mean, in in the U.S., I don't know how many companies imagined that they would have gotten PPP loans from the government. Mm-hmm. They saw what was coming, and I'm sure there were a lot of people thinking, oh, no, this is going to be terrible. Okay, it has been, right? I'm not discounting that at all. 
But that was something like, how good it could it get? Well, maybe we'll get extra financial assistance from somewhere. Ordinarily, I would be left out of the conference room. You would be left out, right? Because people are like, that's never going to happen. Why? Because it's never really happened before on this scale. But it happened, right? But if we don't ask and use our imagination, and that's really what it is. At that point, it's just imagining. There are no right or wrong answers to the what might be possible question. And I think that's really key because I don't think we afford ourselves that luxury of imagining things beyond what might our rational brains tell us or what our peers tell us or what our industry says we should be doing. But when you can really get into that, what might be possible? It's not a binary response. It's not a yes or no. It's not a you're right, you're wrong. It might be possible. This could happen. Again, I'll often ask a similar question. I think your version is much more elegant, which is imagine it's three years from now. And what's the best possible outcome that could have been achieved between now and then for you to say, thank God, the best decision you ever made was working with me? Absolutely. I I love that question. But what I'm really curious about is in the selling scenario, you were to use, well, what if you could do what your customers really care about? Because I think part of, certainly at a corporate level, Uh, being able to map out the customer's journey right at the outset so that you know what you have to do in order to satisfy the people who keep you in business. Right. And that's it's a a critical starting point for organizations that intend to keep their customers. Winning them, despite how difficult it is, is the easier part. Keeping them actually is very simple and very easy if you're set up right. If you're not, then you end up churning and burning them. And then you're always taking three steps back. And I suspect in change and transformation, very often there isn't that clear pathway that the organization understands. They haven't made the same intellectual leaps as the people who are commissioning it. Mm -hmm. So how do you make sure that those people commissioning the transformation or change are going to give enough patience and enough space to have those conversations that are necessary. Okay. I heard uh, a two-part question in that, so hopefully I'll I'll remember both, both. I think the first question to ask, which has been asked by others before of these leaders, if we're concerned they're not going to give the, the time and space to explore this is, well, what might happen if you do nothing? Because if they're having this conversation at all, it's because they're looking at the numbers, right? Maybe they have some, some customer attrition. The numbers aren't quite where they used to be in terms of the new business coming in. So the first question is, what might happen if you do nothing? That's a valid question, right? It might work itself out on its own. It might be some blip. Okay, that's fine. And I think. Where the disconnect is, is in this group think, in this assumption that we as the organization almost know our customers better than they know themselves because we have created a product or a service that we are marketing to them by telling them, you need this. It's going to solve your pain. But nobody's really asked them about their pain. Or maybe they've asked them about their pain, but they've come up with the wrong solution for it. So. 
If your listeners are in a safe place where they can take out their pen and paper, I'm going to give them a a transformative question to ask their clients. It requires very little preparation. You don't have to bring anybody in and consult with anyone else. You just take notice every time one of your clients genuinely thanks you for something. That's it. Start taking notice of that. Thanks, Bill. Oh, yeah, sure. Well, that's great. Like, what are you thanking me for? Like, you know, what happened? Like, what was it? Oh, it got here on time. And you have no idea how important that is to us. Ugh, your contract, instead of being four inches thick, is like a half of an inch thick. And that just helps us get to be able to buy from you faster, which helps us serve our clients. You are going to get what I call exquisite details. I can't make that up, right? Whatever those people say next, when they say thank you and you write down, it was a Tuesday and we delivered X product, <laughs> right? But then really take note and ask them, what, in, what inspired you? However you feel comfortable saying that. Geez, thanks. What was most important to you about that? Whatever comes out next, record that. Record that in your brain. If you have nothing else, write it down. Because if you do that often enough, you're going to start to see some patterns, which lead to here's some of our strengths. This is where we have a competitive advantage over someone else. Because in this day and age, that's the other thing that we don't do. We don't thank people enough. We're, we're, we're all there with the complaint, right? The customer service departments are burning out all over the place because nobody ever calls up and says, hey, just wanted to thank you. You guys are doing an awesome job. I love your online banking and it has made my life so much easier. <laughs> right? <laughs> It doesn't mean we shouldn't ask, or it doesn't mean that you are not going to get that clue because somebody is going to say something one day to you and you're going to be like, oh, I need to explore that. What made that special for you? What made, how did I, my company, our service, why was that meaningful to you? How did it create value for you? And if you just engage in that 30 second, one minute conversation, how could we create more of that for you? There's another one. Because your customer has an idea. They're waiting to be asked. And I put them in the same continuum, in the same kind of bell curve with employees. The companion number to only 70% of strategic executions, that's 70% of it fails, is that only about 35% of employees feel engaged. So I'm not a mathematician, and I'm not saying this is statistically valid, but it would then stand the test of reasonableness that those 35% of people who are engaged are driving the 30% of the strategic execution that succeeds. So we still have two thirds of the people in any given organization essential to that organization's success who do not feel engaged. And if you put them on a bell curve, you have, you're wildly engaged. We already talked about that. They're the ones who are driving the strategy execution success. And then you've got the Actively disengaged is the way the HR consultants are. They're, they're putting spanners into your spokes. Exactly. And in the middle of the bell curve, which is just this beautiful place, are people who are wanting and waiting to be engaged. And the same is true for customers, right? We all know you've got that really angry customer, you've got that really loyal customer. And in the middle of the bell curve, the quiet customers, they are the ones that want to be engaged. They're not necessarily going to speak up because nothing is particularly broken and maybe nothing is off the charts. Let's find out how can we get that off the charts for them. 
Very interesting. Okay, so we've now got everyone aligned. They're talking. There's regular engagement and cross-pollination between departments, hierarchy, and people who are closest to the customer. I can almost hear the birds chirping in the background. We've now got a clear understanding of our customer's journey. We understand how to implement. We've got a plan. How do we pick the three to five to ensure that we're making the right bets? And at what point in that three-year continuum do we have to demonstrate progress for the organization to feel that the plan is credible? Here's the beauty of all of this. Those three to five initiatives self-identify because they're built in the critical mass of the conversation. In every one of these that I do, there are three to five primary objectives that everyone agrees for different reasons. Here's the shared vision. They've come out and said, this is where we need to go. This is what we need to be doing. Or this is a group we need to engage. And again, it's you know consultancy 101, right? I show up with my post-it notes and my whiteboard and people come out of their conversations and they start just categorizing the results of their conversations. So when we talk about opportunities, what might be possible? How do we help others understand challenges in their industries? Uh, What would be a new mix of of customers or new constituents that we could be bringing into the fold? So when we talk about all these opportunities, it's much more specific working with a client. Then we see these answers when they're reported out and they do, they just become apparent to everyone, this is the three to five. Now, of course, we can evaluate that because we're good, intelligent people are going to say, uh, maybe there's a little bit more and we can have an add-on discussion to that. And then there's always these little outliers. They don't get a lot of post-its. The post-it column is shorter for them. And some of those are really fabulous ideas. And I have been in the room where I've seen an organization go, oh, we really want to talk about that thing, that thing that came up. And I can also tell you many times those great ideas that came up, came up from someone who doesn't necessarily share in a group because they don't feel comfortable doing that, right? But there's some really like, ooh, that seems interesting. And then on the other side are things that we put in the proverbial parking lot, right? Because they are ideas, but they're not, they don't have any critical mass form and they don't feel like a good step, a natural next step forward. And that's really what we're looking to do is to take these natural next steps forward because we want the strategy to succeed, right? So when it's too overarching, too grand, right, it gets overwhelming and then that starts to shut us down as humans. So it's really important when you pick those three organizations, which again, they're going to self-identify three to five before you leave the room. One of the last conversations is results. So how will we know that we're on on track? And this is not when we break out the calculators and we bring in the mathematicians, right? These are just top high level. So, okay, if we want to develop new business and one of our opportunities that we see now, because we listen to this podcast, is that we could probably expand contracts with existing customers. Well, what would that look like? Well, in the, the, well, the remaining time that we have in this year, we're going to have 55 new you know, expanded contracts with customers. 
Well, if you're a month into it and you have one, you got to have a conversation, right? Another conversation. What What are we doing here? You know, what? how can we make this better? How good could this get? What are the activities, right? Because we still have all of that. But each person, each salesperson, let's say in this case, they have their own way of developing sales. So they're going to use what's what's best for them, right? They're going to use LinkedIn Sales Navigator. They're going to do face-to-face presentations. They're going to just you know, however they do it, right? They're they're going to bring their own strengths and expertise to bear. And it could just be that it's not the right mix or there aren't, um, it could be something extraneous to the company, right? The uh, pandemic could happen and events are all down, right? People are not going to sell events. <laughs> so that's, you have to look at that very early on and it's re- readily apparent. And again, if, as a leader, if your board, your the people you report to are not putting downward pressure on you, then you can ask that question without already having the answer to it from a, from a place of curiosity, from a place of we're going to make this better and not we're going to punish you because you were wrong and you will never be right. Picking out a couple of really important points. If you punish failure, then you stifle creativity, risk-taking, entrepreneurialism. Um, courage. You stifle courage and you stifle people's voice. So instead of punishing failure, punish hiding it. Make that the unacceptable crime. Screwing up, not. Now, if you keep screwing up, then you have to ask yourself why. Because if it happens two or three times in quick succession, maybe a, a quick peek in the mirror is a good idea. No one will ever hire me to do Excel pivot tables in Excel, ever. Oddly enough, me neither. That that would be two weeks of my life lost and I would still be atrocious at it. Exactly. It wouldn't be good for anyone, including me. And I think many times that's what happens when someone is really not a good fit for what they're doing. The kindest cut ends up being the very best thing that could have ever happened to them. Absolutely. Okay, so that then brings me to my next question. We're now executing. We've got our three big plays. How do you manage expectations when the rules are changing, the stakeholders differ, and you're facing adversity, resistance, things haven't gone according to plan? There's the old military maxim that the plan never survives contact with the enemy. So how do you maintain the momentum, the velocity, the direction, the, and the buy-in when times are tough and you know you're going through the struggle so it's um we can get the directions right off the shampoo bottle lather rinse and repeat right so you have to keep having these conversations it's not a once and done it's not a once and done type of planning tool that you use and it's not like a paintbrush and you just paint it on and walk away and there's our beautiful wall so you have to it helps, and it, as often it does, it breaks down then into smaller departments. So you come from these larger groups, and you're going to get into the sales department, operations, finance. Now everybody's got the structure and the language of these conversations. So one of the first things that I do in my deliverable is I de- I deliver something called a charter. A charter, right? That sounds like something we've all agreed upon, and it's something we can turn to because it's directional. So when we are unsure this doesn't seem to be going. It doesn't feel right, right? It doesn't seem to be going where we thought it would. We can go back to the charter. And the charter says, it's a recap of all those conversations. This is what we care about. This is what we want to do. 
this is what we're really good at, and this is how we'll know if we're getting there on time and, and in the way that we want to. So they have the charter that they can go back to first and foremost. If there are some real substantial significant shifts, then well, let's reconvene and let's have some more strategic conversations around this using the structure and the language that we had to create the charter. Okay, interesting. Lather, rinse, repeat. Okay, and then in terms of making sure that the conversations from the small groups don't suddenly become them versus us, how frequently are you getting them all together to make sure that they're still all not only on the same track, but the original intent hasn't been diluted? Well, I use something with my clients, and I'm certainly not the only one. They're called OKRs, Objectives and Key Results. So we we use those last kind of conversations around the opportunities and the results become the objectives and the key results. And then each team is then tasked, each individual is tasked with what are we specifically going to do to help achieve that key result? Marketing. Marketing doesn't exist to just create beautiful marketing pieces, right? Marketing exists to help improve or ease the new business development or sales I I thought it was to win awards. (laughs) See, right, exactly. So when you know what the objective is and what the key result is, then you see, oh, well, if they're tasked with bringing in those 55 expanded client contracts, then our marketing has to do something to make that easier for them. So it, it starts to become apparent right away. Now you get the individual team members or the, the department, how creatively are they going to do that? Are they going to be having webinars? Are they going to start a podcast, right? How, like, what are they going to do? Are they doing surveys? So it all becomes very self-evident in a lot of ways. And again, it's not limited. The, the quality of the conversations that you're having by focusing on what works opens up everybody's prefrontal cortex. I could make a whole conversation, you know, hour and a half conversation with you just on that. So you're opening up people's creative thinking and you're opening up their determined thinking when they have that charter, something that they can go back to, something that they were a part of, because there are going to be obstacles. How do we get past that, right? How do we work through it? How do we grow through what we go through is the expression that I love. And then new ideas are born from that. So it depends on the size of the organization to answer your other question of how frequently do you get together? It depends on the the size of the team and what you're trying to accomplish. I think I fully believe in a long-term vision. Strategic plan in the dynamic, constantly changing economy and market, I think 18 months, two years. I think if you're trying to go out three to five years, it could be just a little too far. So I think Simplify it and then reevaluate where you are. Vision, long-term. But I would say that the strategic plan should be much shorter time period to adjust for things that we don't know. We have no idea what technology is going to be out here in 18 months. Marcus, I, for seven years, I have like, I want to be a hologram. It's just, and, and I've told everybody I know. And people looked at me like I was nuts seven years ago, but now we're starting to see it. In fact, somebody sent me something, I think it was my husband not too long ago that, Oracle or one of the big technology companies was starting to use holograms to manage their remote teams. And I was like, yes, 
right? So, <laughs> you know, like these are the things we don't know what's going to be here in the next couple of years. We don't know what other external forces are going to happen. But if we have a plan where we can go back to the charter and we say, well, we know what's important to us. We know what we do well. So if the opportunities start to change, we can still apply that those two things to the opportunities and figure out what are the meaningful results. Interesting. Okay. So we're now some way down the roadmap and undoubtedly the plan has, because the planning is inevitably flawed, there are adjusted objectives along the way. You're having to adapt to the real world implications of the changes that you're making. So how flexible does leadership need to be in terms of their willingness to invest time, money, resource, take risk to ensure that the plan doesn't keep them too constrained and too rigid? Because my suspicion is that whilst the overall trajectory may be clear to everybody, the reality is that shit happens um, and um, you have to adapt to that. So what are the qualities of the the workflow leads uh, that are required in order to be able to handle those expectations and those changes and be able to drive the changes necessary through so that the whole plan stays on track? So I think for the commitment, which I think was the first part of that question, is they have to ask a generative question of themselves. How successful do we want to be? Because that really, it's a valid question and it's different for everyone based on the organization's appetite for risk, based on what they do. Quite frankly, if you're making something that you're going to use to install an artificial heart valve in me, I don't want you being really wild risk takers, right? (laughs) So it depends on the nature of what they do. So I think that's a, a, a very poignant and purpose-driven question. There's got to be an honest answer to that. How successful do we want to be? How does that fit in with the culture of the organization? Secondly, to ride those waves of the unknown, right, requires curiosity, creativity, and compassion. And in our first result, our first response as humans oftentimes is, you know, our hair goes on fire right away, right? Oh, we just learned about, right? This just happened. Oh, hair goes on fire. Well, that's that moment to pause, breathe, get curious. Tell me more about what you're talking about, right? Because we may not have all of the answers. So it's that putting that space in to be less reactionary, gather information, gather insights. That's what a, a leader in the modern market does today get differing perspectives, get fresh ideas, which is why we like diversity and diverse teams, right? Because that drives a lot of innovation. Absolutely. And and confirm your sources, quite frankly. (laughs) That's something that we should all be doing today. Go past the headline. And if that's your team member coming in going, "Ah," right, (laughs) it's all coming apart. Okay, well, tell me more about that. What's going on? And let's sure. just take it from there. And I would look less at these uh, roadblocks as roadblocks and look at them more as um, objects of curiosity. Oh, that's interesting. Now, uh, and I'll tell you something that goes back to my business experience prior to the pandemic. I would tell you that I was in industries that I saw two 
significant shifts in two industries that I was working in. And the companies that came out of those significant shifts being more successful were led by leaders who said, hmm, what can we do now? As opposed to the the vast majority of other leaders who were going, oh, what are we going to do now? Right? So that's the difference. It's curiosity. It is caring. There's a level of compassion we want, right? We want to succeed. We want people to thrive, not just survive this. And then there's the creativity. How good could it get? I I was interviewing Steve Sims, who runs Bluefishing, Bluefish, sorry, uh, which is a concierge for uh, billionaires. And he runs a very successful digital media company. And his observation of working with the likes of Elon Musk and Elton John and all these people is that they lean into a problem. They don't lean out out uh, away from it. Right. And that feeds their curiosity. Certainly the way I went into this pandemic was, well, everything's changing. Okay, so what can we do away with? What's working that will continue to work? Mm-hmm. And how do we take advantage of this? Because I, I see this as a renaissance. After every seriously decent plague we've had, massive innovation happened. And yes. I think the real drive in this renaissance is collaboration. It's getting people to do more with less, work more collaboratively. Those organizations that aren't ready to adjust will eventually go the way of the dinosaurs because they don't adapt. And what I'm very excited about, and this is where the model I'm working on, so I'd love your take on this, is the whole concept that strategic alliances um, will be developed that will take on the large organizations in many sectors and lots of little small A players will come together as a point of force and deliver much better outcomes to the customer. The large companies won't be able to turn because they're, they're tied and attached to what made them successful. I violently agree with you. Yes. So that's exactly it is. They can afford to be fleet of foot, which goes back to my other question. How successful do we want to be? What's our appetite for risk, right? Because, you know, maybe you can spin off a division of a large established company to go do something else, right? But it's hard to turn that ship around. Not impossible, because once you want it, you just have to put a plan around it. And that's where the courage comes in. And to go back to, uh, well, so to two things, you touched on me. I'm a big fan of pre-competitive alliances too, especially along the large companies. There are so many pre-competitive. They have so much power in the market. And we saw that actually, I don't know all of the details, but we saw that with the vaccines in the US, right? We had companies that would have never necessarily worked together. They worked together and they shared data and what they knew to develop these vaccines. And then I always think about it as, what could you do pre-competitively? And there's a model for this with a smaller company. And I'm just not remembering their name, but they did something similar in Puerto Rico, I believe it was, or Costa Rica. Terrible. Nobody's hiring me for geography either. But um, they, these large organizations, we have a diabetes epidemic. And what if the people who made a ketchup, tomato sauce, and tomato soup got together and just said, hey, you know what? Pre-competitively we're all going to reduce the amount of sugar in our products by 10%. 
You don't even have to tell us. Just reduce the amount of sugar by 10% and keep selling it because eventually our palates, you know, they get used to that and you forget what the overly sugary thing did. That's a great thing. It's one of my secret dreams. Well, not so secret now. You pull that one right out of me. But, and I think when you talk about the celebrities, this leaning in, how do you lean in? How do you say, hmm, wonder what we can do now? How do you get to that place of curiosity? It's the positive feeling. And that's a question that like I kind of get asked rather glibly, like, no, isn't positivity just about how you feel? Mm -hmm. It is. Let me tell you why that's a strategic advantage because the quality of what you feel is directly related to the quality of your thoughts. So if you're coming from a place where you feel pressured, right, to just, you know, work toward profit and you've got a lot of people riding on you and you're worried and you're nervous, a strategy like planned obsolescence seems like a good strategy because that's all you can say. But our landfills will tell you planned obsolescence, not such a hot deal, right, in the long term. And as a consumer, every time I go out to buy razor blades, right, it's I'm like, really, how much am I spending on these? Because the razor was pretty inexpensive. So there are strategies out there that seem like a good idea, but they're not necessarily the best idea. So when you come from a place of peace, happiness, well, we've said curiosity a lot, but you're just interested in something. Oh, that's curious. Well, look at that roadblock. That's interesting. What do we know about the roadblock, right? But when you can come from a place of peace, then you can do things like there's this gentleman who runs this firm. They, they're a mission-driven real estate investment company. There's a company, it's called Sheets and Giggles. They're in the US and they make sheets out of eucalyptus lyocell because they saw how much energy it took and, and they were looking to do something more sustainable with bed sheets. And on top of that, they are fun. Their name is Sheets and Giggles, right? They are yes. a fun company. So they took an industry that was rather staid, right? And have, are bringing a new life to it because they feel that way, because they're curious. How could we do it better? How could we make this fun, right? That's how you lean into something that maybe somebody else would pass up as a market because they'd be like, wait, there's already some pretty big players out there and it's kind of crowded. Yeah, but I'm going to do this. What can I do, right? What can we do now? So that's where it becomes easier. And what's kind of stacked against us, disclaimer, not a psychologist, don't even play one on a podcast, but what is out that psychologists use is something called the wheel of emotions. And when you look at it, I always think of it as a pizza. And when you really zero in on the positive emotions, depending on your appetite, it's like one to one and a half slices of pizza are positive emotions. The rest of them are negative. So when you can grab on to that better feeling, your better thoughts, your better ideas, your clearer vision, they all have a much better chance of happening than when you're feeling disgusted or angry or just sad, right? So very, very interesting. Look, we're we're coming to the top of the hour, but I do want to just dig a little bit deeper because uh, okay. you've got my imagination going good uh, clappers at the moment so in terms of identifying good pre-competitive allies what would you advise there in terms of like do you mean in industry or how yeah, I mean, yeah, are, are there any qualities that you look for 
um, either in terms of their positioning, their product line, their culture, aligned purpose, their right. people. I would look for very values-driven organizations. And that is probably where there's a history of that. Sometimes that's a family-run organization. They typically have a longer view because they want to pass something on to the next generation of their family, as opposed to maybe a publicly traded company where CEOs kind of, you know, they're like planes on the runway, right? So I would look for a very values-driven organization. I would look for an organization that does have a long view that says, you know, we want this to be successful over the long term. And we understand in a modern market that companies are more successful when they consider a triple bottom line of people, planet, and profit. And that's a genuine, sometimes that's a market-driven thing. Companies are coming to that now, more sustainability, uh, better ingredients in their foods, taking out dyes, all of those things. They come to it because it's market-driven and they know consumers want it. Other companies come to it because they know it's just the right thing to do. It feels right to them. They see it. They're, they're concerned about it and they express that. And they know that as opposed to you know, a big pot of profits, they're going to take some of that and reinvest it in people. They're going to reinvest it in their operations so that they can make their product more sustainable. This really brings us very neatly to a good concluding topic, which is how frequently short-termism drives leadership in business. And in doing that, they create the conditions for disengagement. They create the conditions for burnout, for turnover, for churn. And inadvertently, in their pursuit for short-term gain, they end up creating the conditions where they're doing anything but serving the shareholder in terms of value. They drive churn rate, which means that you're constantly having to replace customers just to stand still. That creates a knock-on effect in terms of additional pipeline that has to be built so that you can maintain your current objectives, which means that it creates the environment that the people who are trying to execute it feel under more pressure. So middle they're management. Panicked. Mm -hmm. uh, absolutely. So in terms of what, one final question then, how can you recognize the symptoms that these blind spots exist and then help them ask one of those degenerative questions so that the leadership suddenly has the scales ripped from their eyes and they think, oh. Right. Well, it's funny. So uh, it may have been a Freudian slip, but they're generative, not degenerative questions. But right. to my point, right, this is collectively where we are. So I first recognize these organizations by two ways. They either are saying to me, I don't get it. We're just stuck. And I don't know why. Whatever we did before, it's not really seeming to get us the same results as we used to have. Or it's a leader who says, I have an idea. I really want to do something. I'm just not sure everybody in the organization is ready for it because it's new and it's different. And it feels exciting to me, but I'm not sure everybody else is excited. Those are the two things, which differs in my mind from the person who is just chronically complaining. It's bad. It's worse. It could happen to you, right? It's bad, it's getting worse, and it can happen to you, I think is the expression. And that's all it is. Like, they're throwing their hands up in the air. What are you going to do? This is just the way business is done. And that's just, you know, like, I don't know that I have an answer <laughs> for that person. That person might need a different level of specialist. 
but for the people who genuinely want to move forward in some way. Can't save a man who wants to drown. Exactly. And and you can, it's just I can't do that, right? There are other professionals who work one-on-one with leaders. You know, there are coaches and all sorts of people who can probably help them, but I'm not, I always say I'm not the surgeon. I'm the wellness coordinator. So if you want to be better, right, then it does go back to asking that earlier question. Okay, so tell me, tell me more. I'm curious too. What is it that you want to do? Why do you really care about it? How good do you think it could get? And when that's when, that's when it happens. That's when somebody says, I want to explore that. I want to know how good it can get because we are just so stuck in in stopping with the, well, I'll just get more sales. What would that look like? How good could it get, right? Right. But again, I think it's really important for us as leaders or as uh, externals to deliver better answers through better questioning. And I think one of the most impressive themes throughout this conversation is the standards of your questions and the simplicity of them, but also the sophistication that it leads into in terms of the answers. So sadly, we've come to the top of the hour. I'd love to have you back if you're uh, willing to. I would love to be back. So, okay, three final questions to wrap up. You've got a golden ticket and you can go back and advise the idiot Kelly age 23 when you thought you were invincible, invulnerable, and immortal. What one bit of advice would you whisper in her ear? Well, that invincible Kelly actually lasted until about age 35. So I've got to say, I'm going to go to age 35 Kelly and tell her exactly what I've shared with you and others, that be aware of how you feel because the quality of how you feel directly influences the quality of your ideas and what you're going to do in life. Okay, that's good advice. If you were to direct people towards um, good books or content, and I'd love one very good you know, favorite on appreciative inquiry, and if you have anything around pre-competitive alliances, that would be really interesting too. But um, you know, the choice is yours. <laughs> okay. So for appreciative inquiry, I would lead them to the thin book of appreciative inquiry. It's a nice light read. You'll, you'll be able to absorb the basic principles and the processes of appreciative inquiry, and it will start to change the way, your, at least your internal dialogue, almost immediately. So I do recommend that. I recommend um, a book called The Healing Organization. It's by two authors. I believe one is Michael Gelb, but if you could check that for me. It's a collection of about 10 or 12 stories of business leaders who ran their companies differently. They had some kind of aha moment, right? They had a, mm, we can't keep doing it like this. And they turned their organizations around in much of the ways that I have been describing through some of the, our conversation today. So I would recommend that. And I also, for the reading ambitious, I recommend the Positive Organizational Handbook. It's out of the University of Michigan. They have the Ross School for Business there. And it's the Oxford Handbook of Positive Organizational Scholarship. It's two inches thick and it has 
lots of stories and research and fodder for great ideas around everything from the design of work, innovation, justice, reciprocity. SOAR is in there, so you'll get a little bit of SOAR. But if you ever believed, hey, there's probably a better slash easier way to do business that makes us feel good, there is, and all the research has been done and compiled in that for you. Excellent. Three great recommendations. Thank you. So tell me this, how can people get hold of you, Kelly? They can reach me via email, Kelly, and that's K-E-L-L-Y at thepositivebusiness.com. They can hear me on season four of the Doing Good Business podcast. Um, that will be available everywhere where you find your podcast. I'm my co-host, Laura Heacock. And occasionally, I am the guest host on Money Matters TV, which uh, can be found on the internet, but it's a, a, a cable produced half-hour business program produced and distributed by Comcast over here, reaching the greater Philadelphia area and other points via the internet. So Excellent. Kelly Stewart, thank you. Thank you, Marcus. I have had a blast today. Excellent. Delighted to hear it. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you want to get hold of me, Marcus at laughs-last.com or direct message me on LinkedIn. Now, if you found today's episode useful, then please like, comment, share and tag someone who could benefit from uh, the very many useful messages. And if you do feel the urge, then please go to Apple or Google Podcasts, wherever you listen and leave an honest review. I'm not fussed if it's one star or five stars. I'd like honest reviews so I can learn how to improve it. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening. Stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.